Amen. So, Israel is on the edge of the promised land. Again, <laughs> how unfortunate that that has to be described that way. They're, they're here looking across the Jordan River at what the Lord has promised them. And they've been here once before. So it's bittersweet in the process. This is the transition into the next generation. The generation that was released from Egypt uh, has all died in the wilderness. And this is the generation that grew up under them. Uh, some of them have not experienced any of the dynamic, powerful miracles that the previous generation did. They didn't go through the Red Sea. They haven't experienced a number of the things that the nation of Israel did before them. They are still experiencing certain aspects of it, but some of it they have not. The transitions that are going to occur are going to be dramatic for them in a positive way, but they're not going to view them as especially positive, right? Because the pillar of cloud is going to disappear. The pillar of fire is going to go away. The daily provision of manna is no longer going to be part of their life. I hope that you can make some personal application here with this, right? When we first come to the Lord and all that miraculous, wonderful provision and daily sustenance that comes, and then over time it feels like, hey, things are drying up. I'm having to really fight for everything now. I'm really having to scramble here. That's part of God's plan, that you would both know his miraculous guidance and provision, and then you would also have to seek for it, that it wouldn't just be there laid out before you. It's going to be a new time of experiences. Many of the things they've experienced in the past are going to change. They're going to have to plant crops, and they're going to have to harvest. Right? They haven't been doing that all along the way. God has been giving them the manna. They're going to be living in houses rather than living in tents, rather than the continuous wandering. And You, know, you think like, well, that would actually be a comfort. For some of us, change is not comforting. We, we get used to a certain way of doing things, even if others would look on and say, well, that's a meager state of living. We say, yeah, but it's comfortable. We like it. And God says, no, now there's going to be a permanency and a change to your process. One of the things they're going to become part of their life is tending to vineyards, which, interestingly enough, they've not planted. Other nations have prepared those places and those crops, and they're now going to be attending to them. It's been pointed out, and it's really quite insightful, that uh, the book of Deuteronomy is a new revelation for them, the things that are going to be said. Not new for us in understanding the character of God, but for them, they're going to be experiencing God in a different way, in a different level at this point. Love is what's going to enter in that they haven't heard about in the ways that they're going to in the book of Deuteronomy. There are more mentions of God's love 
in the book of Deuteronomy and then all four books previous to it combined. It's really kind of interesting. If you study through the scriptures, you discover that here there are all of these references. We'll look at a few. I suspect, you guys, that this is why Jesus Christ liked the book of Deuteronomy so much and quoted from it more than any other book of the Bible. How about that? Really interesting. When... Jesus went through 40 days of temptation and then was met by Satan. Every single time he combated Satan, he spoke from the book of Deuteronomy. His entire spiritual defense came from the book of Deuteronomy. We look at it and kind of view it as a drudgery, right? Because a lot of it is reviewing the law. <laughs> and when we went through Leviticus, you know, we're kind of thinking like, wow, is this book ever going to end? You know, all of these details and all of these methods and all of these practices. And now you come to Deuteronomy and it literally means the second law or the second account of the law. And yet more mentions of love and used by our Lord more than any other book of the Bible. A few of those references, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37 says, and because he loved our fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them and brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. That opening statement, because he loved our fathers. We begin to hear from the Lord about his love for the nation of Israel and his love for humanity in a way we haven't previously. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13 says, He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil and increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give to you. So often we hear that uh, definition of the God of the Bible. Well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, people will say, implying that it's somehow different than the God of the New Testament. You know, Jesus Christ is so gracious and kind and loving and forgiving. Very true. And so isn't the God of the Old Testament. In equal fashion, God demonstrates and declares his love toward humanity. You know, if you're, if you're thinking, but Jesus was always forgiving, always gracious. Read the entirety of the New Testament, including the book of Revelation, and understand that he's the judge of all nations, right? So there is <clears throat> the power of God's judgment contained in the New Testament and the gracious love of God contained in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15, says the Lord delighted only in our, or excuse me, your fathers, to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all people as it is this day. He's going to talk in detail about how he did not choose them or love them because they were better. He did not choose them or love them because they were more holy. He did not choose them or love them because they were sinless. In fact, in each one of those examples, he chose them for the opposite reason. They were the fewest in number. 
They were the most wretched, the most complaining, the most difficult, the most sinful of people. And God the Father chose them to prove his power as he builds an incredible nation out of them. It's, it's very much an underdog story. <clears throat> he takes the least likely to succeed and he accomplishes the most with them. So consider yourself in that illustration. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are many references to a few terms. The land will be spoken of over and over. Their inheritance, which is different, will be spoken of over and over. The land is part of their inheritance, but God himself is actually their inheritance. So it's used in many different contexts and holds many different explanations. Two prominent themes of the book. You might want to write this down somewhere. There, there's a lot of things discussed, a lot of examples given, a lot of understanding to be derived, but two very prominent themes in the book are, number one, the King James words it as hark or hearken. You know, we would simply say today, listen, but it's that idea of take it in. You know, don't, don't just let this strike your eardrum. It's the idea of letting it uh, penetrate into your thinking, which is a big theme as far as the second part goes, is the condition of the heart. He's going to talk about the heart, the mind, and the thought a tremendous amount. So listen to the point where it penetrates the heart and the mind, the soul, and the behavior is what the Lord is saying. Consider this in contrast, right? You know, especially the book of Exodus and all that they've gone through and done and the book of Numbers in not obeying God and rebelling against God. And now you come to the book of Deuteronomy and he sort of stamps his foot and flails a little bit and says, listen, you know, gets their attention through this process, very much wants them to absorb the things that he has to say here in this book. Uh, for those that think the Bible is sort of out of date or, you know, not relevant, we hear a lot of that, you know, in churches today. You know, they, they strive to be the relevant church. How are we going to be relevant to our culture? How are we going to be relevant in our society? Okay, well, listen, this book of the Bible, Paul, we'll talk about it in a minute, very much is delivering the content and the teaching from Deuteronomy to the church at Corinth. I mean, if there is a church in the ancient world that was very reflective of the modern church's behavior, we are very reflective of Corinth, right? They were all, you know, caught up in sexual sin and adultery and suing one another and prostitution and drunkenness and thievery and, you know, deceitfulness and politics. And that church was very much like the church of today. And Paul reaches back to Deuteronomy continuously and brings it forward to them. The problem in the modern culture of trying to be relevant is they've 
tried to be so relevant that they've become irrelevant. Because they've become like the culture. You know, there's a statement that's gone around for a couple decades now about following the Lord with your life is the only form of true rebellion left. Think about that, right? Our whole society acts like I'm a rebel. I think for myself as they behave just like everyone else. The only, the only true rebellion is to choose Christ and rebel against the world. So as far as being relevant, I can't think of a more relevant book of the Bible. As far as those particular things of the cultural influence, the sinfulness, the corruption, uh, I would ask you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, or at least write it down and let me read and you can review later. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, begin at verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. That's the pillar of cloud that led them, right? All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, meaning the Red Sea. All ate the same spiritual food, which incorporates the idea of manna. All drank the same spiritual drink, which he talks about here, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. The one that Moses struck the first time and was supposed to speak to the second time, but struck for the second time that provided them with a river of water, right? Let's keep that in mind. Two million plus people at a minimum and all of their livestock and cattle received water, right? This isn't a garden hose running in the wilderness or even a fire hose running in the wilderness. This was a massive torrent of water that came out of that rock and supplied water for that whole nation in order for it to survive. All of them experienced these things. And then he makes the statement, and that rock was Christ. That's a concept to consider. Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example. Do you see what I'm saying about how he's reaching back to Deuteronomy and saying to the church at Corinth, all of those things were, we would say, carved in stone or at least written down for us to look back at as an example for ourselves. They become our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. 23,000 people participated in sexual sin, and 23,000 people died as a result of the plague that came upon the nation of Israel. When it says they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, again, sexual sin and idolatry combined. That's actually referring to 
Moses going up to the mountain. And when he comes back down, Aaron has made the golden calf. And they're all engaged in idolatry and sexual sin. The nation is an example to us as believers to avoid conduct that is similar to theirs. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. I think your King James Version says they murmured, right? It sort of sounds like the act, doesn't it? That under the breath, the murmuring. Imagine what it sounds like when two million plus people are murmuring in their tents and murmurs. Everybody's, you know, mumbling and grumbling and complaining. And Moses is saying, what did you say? And they're saying nothing and walking on. Murmuring and complaining. Don't be murmurers. Don't be complainers. And we're destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Listen, if Paul is writing to the church at Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago and saying, hey, we're at the end of the ages, then where are we? We're in the last seconds of the last ages. If they were already in the last ages. So we'll get to verse 1 now where, Again, it is referred to as the second law, or as I said, the second account of the law. The Hebrew title, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, uh, simply meant the words. So they would refer to the book of Deuteronomy as the words. And they take that from the very first words of the first verse. Verse 1 that says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. And in case you've got that picture mixed up in your mind, right? They came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and around the back of Israel, came in from the eastern side, crossing the Jordan in from the east to the west. So when he says we're on this side of the Jordan, they haven't crossed into the land yet is what he's referring to at this point. So they were on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness in the plain opposite Suf between Paran, Tophel, Aben, Hazaroth, and Dizahad. This, it's the 11th day's journey from Horeb by way of Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. We've talked about this many times, right? 11 days journey. It's taken them all this time to get there. Now, it came to pass in the 40th year, 11 days, 40 years. 11-day journey has taken them 40 years. A remarkable statement right here. In the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments. Because heaven is our permanent home, as believers, the scripture refers to us as sojourners in this world. A sojourner is a person who resides 
in a place temporarily. They're staying there. If you uh, dwell in the wilderness for 38 years on a journey that could have taken you 11 days, all because they were slow learners, right? If we are like this, maybe it would be better to describe us as slow journeys. Just a thought or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, but we don't always accomplish what we should in the time that we should. And that is a major theme in this book. Slow journeying, not advisable. Verse 4. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth, at Edirai. Og, king of Bashan, historically is 12 to 13 feet tall, depending on whose description you listen to. And that's not just a biblical reference, right? We have archaeological evidence. We have all kinds of other historic records of these locations. If you read Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, which is mostly reliable, there is an extensive explanation of the archaeological digs that were done in the cities of Og and Heshbon and this whole region. Uh, interesting things like the door catches in the houses are six feet in the air. Their door frames are 12 and 15 feet tall. Iron bed frames that are 11 and 15 feet long. You know, they were really large people. You know, basketball was their favorite sport. You know, they did all kinds of things and existence. You know, femur bones have been found, human femur bones. So from the knee to the hip socket, over three and a half feet long. So now consider what the rest of that human being looked like. Really, really huge people becomes very significant in the rest of the story here. These giants have been killed by the Lord and his armies before they enter the land. So back in chapter 1, looking at verse 5, on this side of the Jordan, the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. So they've received the law. He says, turn and take your journey. Go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, on the mountains and in the lowland, on the south, on the seacoasts, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now listen, they don't ever accomplish these borders. We talked about that in the description of the borders when we read through the end of Numbers. God is telling them, this territory belongs to you, and they don't ever make it to these great distances. They go in there, they conquer some of the people, they bring them under subjugation to themselves through taxation, and then they withdraw. They do not occupy and keep the territory. 
Imagine how different the Middle East would be today if nations that exist inside those territories had been pushed out in the ancient world and they were now occupied by Israel. That would be an entirely different political landscape if they had followed the Lord in all of these circumstances. Verse 8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. God is saying this land already belongs to you. I have I have made the covenant. I have made the promise. I have set the boundaries. It is the fearfulness. It is the doubt. It is the faithlessness of the people that keeps them from experiencing all that God has already established for them. So he's reminding them of their history. At this point, Moses is referencing all the way back to things God said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're now living in this present day, trying to live by those promises. There's a profound parallel between the nation of Israel and the nation of America. This, this country was founded by Christian men. You know, the debates we constantly hear about, oh, you know, certain members of our forefathers were not actually Christians. You know, at best they would be described as deists and they go through, you know, someone who just believed in a God, not necessarily the God of the Bible. I just want to say to you very plainly, that's false. All of the men who were involved in the foundation of this country were profound Christians, including Jefferson. He's one that's often, you know, relegated to the, the category of deist. You know, they'll, they'll often relegate, uh, you know, Ben Franklin into a place and says, well, he, you know, he wasn't necessarily a Christian. Let me, let me just be plain about this, okay? If they were alive and here today, their behavior, their knowledge of the Scripture, their prayer life, their conduct as Christians would probably eclipse everyone you know who is a Christian. We would, we would all probably be very much considered liberals in comparison to those men, right? Almost every one of them, we have their prayer journal. They were praying to Jesus Christ. There is a massive movement to try and renounce the Christian heritage of America. Howard Zinn has literally rewritten history. And if you're thinking, who's Howard Zinn and what do I care? He's responsible for almost all of the history texts that are taught in American colleges. So the young people right now that are rioting in the streets and you're saying, what's wrong with them? They've been taught by the likes of Howard Zinn and all of his cronies. They, they don't believe the history of America. These people, at this point, have grown up under the tutelage here in Deuteronomy by people that didn't trust God. If you're thinking, no, no, this is the nation of Israel, they're nailed down. They were sent to the promised land and told, that's yours, go get it. Right? They arrive, send 10 spies, 12 spies, 10 of them come back, right? And, ten, and 12 of them come back, 10 of them come back saying, we can't do it. 
and they completely influence the entire nation into being faithless. Consider that. Consider that ten men turned and changed the hearts of two million. How many are in the ranks today that are turning the hearts of our nation away from God? I suspect there's at least 10 of them. You know what I'm saying? 10 million or so. Turning the hearts of the people away from God. I have set the land before you, God said, meaning it's yours. Look at verse 9. And I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. It's interesting, as Moses gives this account, the term bear you, we would directly translate today to be referee you. I, I, I can't, I, can, I just, I'm wearing the striped shirt all day. I've got the whistle in hand and I, I just can't even keep control of this nation. This should be a nation that's being governed by God. And instead, right, you got a constant referee is what Moses has become. Verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of our fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are. And bless you as he promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among you, your tribes. I will make them heads over you. And, your, and you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. I established a well-ordained government inside your ranks. So at this point, Moses is saying there should be no reason for us to have any kind of failure. There shouldn't be any struggle. I have brought you out as the Lord commanded. I've taught you the things I was supposed to teach you. And I've established people amongst you that are capable of leading you to the same degree that I have led you. And yet they continue to struggle in this process. So now in verse 16, he says, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. So the people that will come and live amongst the nation of Israel. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of any man's presence for the judgment is God's the summary of what was just said in verse 16 and the beginning of 17 is justice is built 
on having a greater fear of God than man. What's going on at this time in their nation and what's going on in our time today is the world around us is more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. Okay, and now if you're saying, yeah, I know that and I get that sense, okay, we, we use a term today that um, we add terms to things that already exist, right? Social justice is, is thrown around a lot, right? Economic justice is a term that is used. Racial justice is a thing that people commonly talk about. You've probably heard me say this before. I'm not trying to just be, you know, some kind of current event teacher here. There's a biblical principle within this, right? Justice works based upon the law. We have the law because we have God. Okay? God designed, built, constructed everything and therefore said, right, this is what you're going to do with that thing. Because he designed it, because he built it, he is the one who gets to say how things are going to be built and how things are going to be used. There are all kinds of examples in this. I, uh, I met a man years ago. I've used him in a few different examples. He's a car collector. And one of the vehicles that he had was a Ferrari. And, uh, you know... For most of us, we've never even stood within proximity of a Ferrari, let alone owned one, right? So this, this particular car, collector's edition amongst Ferraris, as we're standing there, I say to him, like, oh, man, I'd love to hear this thing run. And I'm, you know, sort of pushing him. But I don't, I don't you know, what do I know? And he says, no, that would take too long. And I'm thinking, like, like are the keys locked in a safe somewhere? Like, like, what does it take to start this car up? And so after a few minutes of, like, he's not even responding. He just, his answer was, no, that would take too long. Right? So after a few minutes of nothing's happening, I say, well, why couldn't we start the car up? That would be, I've never heard one run before. And he said, no, it literally would take too long to get the car running and up to pressure. I'm thinking, like, what are you talking about? Well, later he explains to me that this is such a high-performance vehicle that when you start it up, you don't get to drive it until the oil pressure reaches 20,000 PSI. How do you take the oil cap off when there's 20,000 pounds? Of, you know what I'm saying? I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. And you don't want to start it up and let the pressure start to build and then to just shut it down. Right? It hasn't reached pressure, hasn't reached temperature, doesn't do it. And I was young enough and in ignorant enough that I pressed a little further with the whole thing. 
because I want to hear the car run. And then he finally explains to me how much the car cost and how much the motor costs and how much the oil costs and how he only drives this car two or three times a year under the safest and best conditions. This is a collection piece. And we don't do that. Why? Because that's not what it was designed for. It has very specific operating parameters, the likes of which I don't know anything about. Right? Jump in the truck. Hopefully hit the key ignition spot as you crank the key in turning. And before the motor's even really running, you've got it in gear and you're driving out of your drive. That's how I operate in my vehicles. Not so with that one. There are very specific parameters. The world has abused all of God's parameters for so long that when God says things like, hey, 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 hey. Sex belongs inside marriage between one man and one woman. Nowhere else. The world screams, why not? Fire it up now. Let's go. It has no respect for the designer, let alone the parameters by which it would function. There are very specific parameters that God has designed. And this is what he's saying. Yeah, the men. Yeah, Moses. Right. But did you notice right in the middle of verse 16? And judge righteously. Not based upon how they feel. See, the minute you add anything to justice, it's no longer justice, right? Economic justice. Well, now we're not basing anything based upon law. We're basing it entirely upon the interpretation of of the economics and thereby we will derive what we think should be happening regarding what is now no longer justice justice is to say this is how it is right and wrong anything outside these parameters is wrong and will be judged accordingly our, our culture is lost in this totally lost you know, I've spent a fair amount of time studying a number of these issues. Have you ever heard somebody just flippantly say, as you know, they're usually kidding, they take something from you and you're like, hey, give it back. And we used to do this as kids and we would say things like, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Do you understand that inside the law based upon justice, that is absolutely true, but Nine-tenths of that law also proves guilt. That doesn't mean you just get to take and steal from somebody else and say, I'm in possession of it. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you stole it from them, nine-tenths of the law is convicting you right now. When we, when we use the law properly, then our whole culture is in balance. What's going on right now is... Our culture is tagging on to justice and government and race, all these other things which nullify the definition of whatever subject we're talking about. You don't just find men that everybody respects. Who likes this guy? I like that guy. Everybody else, all the hands go up. Okay, so he's the man. 
And now he starts to make the decision. It isn't a popularity contest. Did you not hear that in this section I just read? Right, N Nothing to do with men. Showing no favor. Not looking at who's involved. Judge righteously. Righteousness comes from two elements. This isn't my opinion. This is the truth of God's word. Being right with God, number one. That, that's not just like, oh, I thought of this and therefore I will define it this way. This is what righteousness is and this is how it is defined. If you are right with God. Secondly, if you are right with your fellow man. If you are right with God and you are right with your fellow man, then you are living in righteousness. You have to judge based from those two positions. If you're not right with God, you can't judge righteously. It's not possible. If you are going at this with any kind of prejudice against or in favor, then you're not right with your fellow man. Therefore, your judgment is not righteous. The Lord is telling these people how they can experience his blessing. You're going into the land. Your parents screwed up bad. That generation made a mess of things. I'm giving you the opportunity to set things aright. If they'll proceed forward with these instructions, things are going to be good. Continuing in verse 17, the case is too hard for you. Bring it to me, meaning Moses. I will hear it. And I command you at that time all things which you should do. Joshua is going to fill that role once Moses has left the scene. Verse 19, so we departed from Horeb, went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, and the Lord your God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord your God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not Fear or be discouraged. Do not fear or be discouraged. That's exactly what happened when they came to the border previously. They came with all the faithful confidence that the Lord had provided them. But when they arrived there in sending the 12 spies into the land, <clears throat> those men came back with the bad report. When they heard the bad report, their hearts were filled with fear and discouragement. Listen, if you have heard from the Lord the things that the Lord has said to you and wants to do for you and wants to do in you and you have charged out into those things to see them accomplished in your life, and you've reached a point where fear and discouragement are keeping you from doing those things? No, they're not? Okay. Have you tried twice and failed both times? And now you're looking at what I'm saying and thinking, yep, I know I need to do that. But your two previous failures are telling you right now, can't be done. 
then you are discouraged by past failures. You might know what the Lord is telling you to do. But discouragement is keeping you from doing that. No, it's not that many. It's something like 6,000 times you've attempted it. And now, even as I describe that, you're thinking, no, it isn't a matter of discouragement, Will. It's a matter of impossibility. I have tried so many times that I now know with an absolute certainty that it is not possible. If that's where you're at, then you're beyond discouragement and you've entered into a place of faithlessness. You see, if the Lord has said it to you, right? He says to these people in verse 21, the Lord your God set the land before you. Go up and possess it. It is yours. Go get it. Think about the ways the Lord would say to us, I don't want you to do these things, or I do want you to do those things, and yet we in our experience tell ourselves can't be accomplished. It's not possible. We have to stop listening to those things. Otherwise, right, easy to read about these guys and think, wow, they've really failed. Let's make sure that's not us in our own circumstances. Let's make sure we're not the ones who are listening to the voices of discouragement. We're going to go a little bit further with this same discussion. Exodus chapter 23, verse 28, when the Lord told them to go up, he said, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. What an incredible weapon, right? You go into battle, and you've got all your skills, all your armament, everything in order. Everybody's been trained. All of their fasteners and buckles and shields are all in place, and everybody's you know, wound right up about, let's go do this thing. That's only going to accomplish so much. But if you're about to engage and all of your enemy starts springing up out of their hiding places and ripping their armor off, that tends to make the battle a whole lot easier. You know what I'm saying? God is sending the hornets in ahead of them. I hope you've experienced in life that God will do this. You'll go to circumstances and you'll meet the evidence that God is gone before you and that he's accomplishing the work. The, the defeat is in, I mean, think about this, you guys. This is a promise from the Lord. He actually did accomplish this and he's about to accomplish it again with them as they enter the land. One of the things that comes up is as they're in the house of Rahab, the harlot being hidden by her in preparation for their invasion, she makes the confession. When you guys crossed out of Egypt through the Red Sea 40 years ago, we were already defeated as a people. Jericho makes the she makes the confession for the city of Jericho. We already knew God was with you and our circumstances were hopeless. What a terrible condemnation to arrive 40 years later ready for the attack and, and your enemies are like, wow, uh, you guys like really take your time, don't you? For 40 years to get here? We've been living in fear for 40 years of the day that you arrive. What if God's sending the hornets ahead of us, but we're hanging back? 
He's clearing the way. He's making the circumstances possible, but we're not following through. You want to consider how much of these defeats belong to us ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 22. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word for us of the way by which we should go up, of the cities into which we shall come. The Lord just said in verse 21, the land is yours. That's my promise to you. Effectively, God is saying, I've already signed the agreement. Now just go claim your possession. And then they show up and say, now, how are we going to accomplish this? Right? <clears throat> if God tells you, I bought you a brand new car. It's down at the dealership. Here's the paperwork. It's all paid for. Here's the keys. Go pick it up. And you're all excited and you drive down to the dealership and you ask to speak to someone in sales and you go in and you say, now, like what kind of monthly payments am I looking at? And I'm just not sure. Can we look at my income and compare it to how much this car costs and see, I mean, is this a good decision for me? And, and, and then, you know, go back home and say to the wife, can't do it, man. I thought we were. God gave us that promise, but you know how much that car costs? The payment on that every month is, is like a mortgage. Man, we can't do it. It's giant. This is what the 10 spies come back and do. God did not say, I want you to go into the land and figure out if you can do it. I want you to go into the land and see if what I'm telling you is possible. He said to the people, I have already given you this land. Now you should go claim it. Look, look it's kind of like a very painful message for us to hear. Because so very often, it would be great if we could relegate all of this failure to somebody else's life. But instead, we have to swallow this hole in realizing, no, that's like a very accurate picture of me. And what the Lord has done with me. What he's called me to, what he's told me, what he's promised me. And really, the reason that I'm in the place I am today, it says I've just been dragging my feet. When we, when we finally get to lacing up our boots and getting in the fight, you guys, all of the struggle is the same as it would have been all those years ago. There's not, there's not any new method. There's not any new way. There's not any new understanding the answer is still exactly the Lord. His promises, His fulfillment, His Holy Spirit. Looking for a new answer is a lot of what leads people astray. Do you not have friends who are off in other, like, really whacked out, zany churches and religions and cults, right? I guarantee you, if you examine their lives and their behavior, what was going on was they were discouraged. And they started looking for the new and the exciting and the way out there. 
And they chased after those things until they ended up in places that they were not supposed to be. Right? Can we not conclude based upon the nation of Israel that all of those wanderings and places they went were places that they were not supposed to be? They should have been in the victorious living of the promised land. Yeah, but please, please don't feel like I've come here this morning aggravated with you, beating you up, right? I, I have to look at myself in this and examine and understand my own sinful human character. Hearing God's promises, we know how to do that. Listen to his word, pray, be in fellowship, right? Praise him, sing to him, sing of him. He ministers to our hearts in the process. We hear what he is saying to us. We know how he is leading us. What happens is we listen to men more than God. And if you're sitting there right now saying, nope, not me. I'm an independent thinker. Ah, there you go. The man or woman you've been listening to most is you. We are our own worst enemy. Victory is what Christ has already given us. He's already given us. I've given you this illustration before, and I'll close with this. There are countless Christians who spend their lives locked inside spiritual prison cells that have already been unlocked. Christ has already delivered them, and they sit in the same place they were a year ago, two, five, ten years ago. There comes a point where you have to realize it's time to get up. It's time to move. It's time to leave this place and go live in the way that Christ has called me to. Amen? Amen. So, that's a portion of the chapter and most of your introduction. We'll pick up right there next week. Will you stand and we'll pray? Communion Sundays, so just morning service should just be an hour longer or something. I don't know. Use up that time. It's always a blessing. Father, thank you very much for your grace and your work in our lives. Thank you for being forgiving of us and bringing us back to those places we need to be. Lord, help us to cross into the life you want us to live. Help us to leave behind the things that need to be left behind that we would see and experience your will for our lives. Lord, we, we surrender anew to you this morning and ask that you would accomplish your work, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in us, through us, and by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.